The story of the very first raindrop. The Apostle Paul told the church in Rome, he said, the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And what he's talking about is all these stories in the Old Testament were written so you and I could learn from them and that would in turn give us hope, right? That's what Paul says these are for. We're going to read and think about and learn a little bit about the story of the very first raindrop, the first time it rained. You know, the Bible tells us that when God created the earth, He put water above the firmament and water below the firmament. Now, the firmament is our atmosphere. And so there was water above the atmosphere and there was water below the atmosphere. And the Bible says that it didn't rain. It says that in the morning, there was dew all over the ground. Now, you've seen some mornings with dew. Have you all ever seen dew out here? <laughs> okay. You've seen some with dew. It was like that every morning, and that watered the earth. Like a terrarium. Have you ever seen a terrarium where you water it once and you seal it up and the water just keeps recycling? That's the way the earth worked, and it didn't rain. They didn't need rain at the time. God creates Adam and Eve and they commit their sin, get kicked out of the garden, Cain and Abel happens, and there's two lines of people. The very first few chapters of Genesis cover 2,500 years. They cover a lot of territory. And at the end of that 2,500 years, the Bible tells us that the world was a wicked, wicked place. Now, I grew up in small town Oklahoma and to me, when I moved to Dallas, I thought, this is a wicked place. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was a bad place to be in Dallas. Now, since then, I've been in Nigeria and a few other places that make Dallas not seem quite so bad. But you know, the Bible says that God looked down on man and said that he saw that the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Can you imagine that? Now, there's some evil people even out here in West Texas, right? There's some evil people out here. But can you imagine if everyone around thought only about evil all the time? I mean, from the time they got up to the time they went to bed, they thought about evil all the time. That'd be a bad place to live. God looked at it and God was frustrated. God was angry about this. In fact, God decided that He was going to end this, the, hum, the human experiment, so to speak. He was going to put an end to it all. In fact, your old King James Bible says that it repented God that He'd made man. The word repent means He changed His mind. God looks down, He sees all this wickedness, and He goes, I wish I'd have never even done this. I wish I'd have never created them. And here's God's attitude. Here's what God says. The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. He said, it's over. It's done. I'm finished. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. Now those of you who are parents, you know your kids can push you to a point that at some point you go, okay, that's it. I've had it. And that's where God was. I'm done. I am going to destroy them. Because they filled the world with violence. 
And I'm going to destroy the earth and I'm going to destroy everyone who is here. You see, that's how angry and upset God was at this time. Now, I know in my home with my children, when mom got that way, and said, that's it, kids. They settled down. But if dad ever got to the point where he said, all right, that's it. Then some behaving really started happening. I mean, people shaped up. You know why? Because they did not want the wrath of daddy poured out upon the children. <laughs> that's why. Can you imagine being in this world and God being so fed up with you and everyone around you that He says, I'm just going to kill them all. I'm just going to wipe them out. He says, Behold, I do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein there's the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. He said, I'm going to finish it. I'm going to end it. Everyone that's alive, all the animals that breathe air are going to die. I'm just going to wipe it out. And you know, that could have been the end of the Bible. That could have been it. Could have been all over at that point. Except, there's another verse. Verse 8. In verse 8, we find, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We sing a song about that sometimes, don't we? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's a wonderful, wonderful verse. Do you know what grace means? The word grace? The word grace literally just means favor. He found favor in the eyes of God. Okay? Now Noah, we read, was a righteous man. Noah was a man who tried to do good. He tried to do righteousness. And he was vexed with the evil that went on. He was upset with it. He hated it. And not only was Noah a good man, but Noah's boys were good boys. And Mrs. Noah was a pretty good lady. And the daughter-in-laws were pretty good ladies because they were part of this family. And so God had mercy on them. He had favor on them. So God comes to Noah after he is determined to destroy the world with water. And he comes to Noah and he says, Listen, I want you to make an ark of gopher wood and room shalt you make in the ark. And then he gives him a description of how he wants him to build this ark. Now, do you know what the word ark means? The word ark means box. You remember the ark of the covenant? I used to think an ark was a boat. Ark wasn't a boat, an ark was a box, okay? And this was a great big box, and this box floated, okay? The Ark of the Covenant was a little box that had some things in it, in the tabernacle and in the temple. This is a big box, and it's going to have a whole bunch of stuff in it. He's going to have all kinds of animals in there. They're going to have all kinds of things in this ark. And he's going to build it. It was a great, great big thing. Now, I don't know if some of you may have been to, the, been to Kentucky. Somebody in Kentucky has built a life-size replica of this ark. My family and I went there last summer and saw it. And it's impressive. It's, it's, just, it's the largest wooden structure in the world today, even now. It's just massive and it's amazing to see. This thing was so large, it was 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. Now, a cubit, as I understand it, was from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your finger. 
And probably technically, the tip of the king's elbow to the tip of the king's finger was the official cubit. So it varied. It wasn't an exact amount, but it was roughly 450 feet long. That's a football field and a half. That's a long, long, long boat, isn't it? Long box. And it was 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. That's a four-story building. This thing was huge. And he said, I want you to put three levels in it. I want you to put floors in it. I want you to put windows in it and a door. And, and he says, I want you to put pitch inside and outside. That was a waterproofing. And he said, I want you to make it out of gopher wood. And he gives him all these very specific instructions. And then he says, I want you to get animals. And I want you to get a bunch of animals. I want them in pairs. You've got to have a certain amount of the clean and a certain amount of the unclean. Seven pairs of the clean and two pairs of the unclean. And I want you to put them in this boat, in this big box. And God caused all those animals to come together. Can you imagine what that was like? I just... I just, in my wildest dreams, can't remember. When we went to see the ark, they've got a little little area back there where they've got kangaroos and different things. And my daughter and I rode a camel. <laughs> you know, I guess he probably had some camels on that ark. They had all kinds of different creatures on that ark. It was so large that it would hold the same as 522 boxcars. That's a Big, long train, isn't it? I don't know if there's ever been a train that had 522 boxcars on it. Huge, huge thing. But the thing about it is, when he was building this ark, the Bible says that he did almost everything God told him to do. God told him, I want you to build it out of gopher wood. But you know, a lesser known part of the Bible is when God said, you know, or Moses, boy, I am getting tangled up. Noah said, you know, Lord, I know you told me to use gopher wood, but this pine is a lot easier to cut, and so I'm just going to use the pine that's here close. Do you all remember that part of the Bible? You don't remember that, do you? Because the Bible actually says, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. He did exactly what God told him to do. I mean, he used the kind of wood he was supposed to. He put the number of floors. He didn't say 450 foot long. Man, that's big. But you know, Mrs. Noah would love a sewing room. And, and I'd love, you know, let's, let's make this an even 500 foot. He didn't do that. He just did exactly what God told him to do. You know, we find throughout the Bible, all these great men and women of the Bible that you read about, Deborah and Sarah and, and Moses and Daniel and all these great men and women of the Bible, you know what they always did is they did what God told them to do. They didn't argue with Him. They didn't fuss with Him. They didn't try to improve His plan. They just did what God told them to do. And then God told, the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household. Now I want you to imagine, you've spent a long time, do you know how long it took him to build this ark, by the way? A hundred years. That's a long time to work on a project. My wife thinks it's going to take me that long to get our house fixed, but uh, I mean, a hundred years he's been building this ark. 
And he gets down and he finally gets it finished and all these animals have come and they've loaded it all up. And God says, all right, you and your family, your house, come in. Oh, and by the way, you know what he was doing while he was building this ark every time he went to the Home Depot? Is he was telling people at the Home Depot, you know why I'm building an ark? Because God's going to kill everybody and you need to come get on it with me. You need to come help. And he preached. The Bible says he was a preacher of righteousness. He preached and preached and preached. For a hundred years he preached. And God told him, you and your family, you come on this ark. You get on here. And I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. He said, you get on this and I am going to destroy. Water is going to come out of the sky. I know you've never seen that before, but it's going to happen. And I'm going to kill everyone and everything that's not in that ark. The Bible says the self-same day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. So they all went into the ark together that day. All eight of them. That doesn't sound like very much, does it? You know, if I were to show up here tonight and uh, here to this meeting and I was ready to preach and it got time to start and there were only eight of us, I'd go ahead and preach. But I'd go, wow. <laughs> Wish we'd get a few more people here. Eight of them. And they went into that ark and God closed the door and they waited and they waited and they waited and they waited. God went, they went in. God shut the door. Do you know how long that it took them before the rain started falling? It took seven days. They were in that ark before the rain started falling. But when it did, the Bible says that the same day there were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Now, I can remember as a kid, I want you to know, this is not a fun story. This is not nursery, nursery room stuff that you put on the walls. This was a horrific thing. This was, I, I, I looked for pictures, I don't know what it was like for the fountains of the great deep to be opened up. This is the closest thing I could find in my mind of what that would have been like. The earth just cracking open and water just gushing up out of the ground. I mean, just like a geyser. And it rained. You know, when I got here Saturday night, a storm blew in and it rained. I know y'all can have some storms out here, but not like this. I mean, it rained. Those are... Storm clouds. I took that picture in my backyard of some storm clouds. And those didn't produce a whole lot. I mean, the Bible tells us that it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine it just pouring and pouring and pouring for 40 days and 40 nights? That's a long time. And they're in that old, big old box. My wife would call it a coffin, probably. She'd say, we got in this coffin here. And they got all these animals. And the water starts rising and it starts lifting that thing. And don't you know, 
it moved and they probably didn't have Dramamine back then. And off they went into this storm. I can't imagine what it would be like. Now I think about this story and I think, wow. You know, Paul said that these things were written for you and I that we might have hope. And yet when I think about this story, I think about what it must have been with all the people dying. And all the horror and all the fear and the the and I go, how does this story give us hope? Where's the hope in this story? Well, I want to show you what I believe the hope in this story is. I believe the hope in this story is really pictured right here, where he says, You come into the ark, you and all of your household. I want you to think about what that would have taken for you to come into that ark if you were there. Just imagine for a moment you're not here right now, but you're Noah or one of Noah's sons or daughter-in-laws. And God says, I want you to get in this ark. Come in here. What kind of commitment would that take from you? God says water's going to fall out of the sky so much it's going to cover all the mountains. But... There has never been one time in your life that you saw rain. You know, this, is, this kind of commitment to what God told them to do is what we would normally call wholehearted commitment, right? I mean, you ha you'd have to be committed to spend a hundred years building this ark and then to go in and let God close you in there with all those animals, right? I mean, that would take commitment. What do we mean when we talk about being wholehearted? You know, we, uh, I hate to confess this here to you, but I, like some others in your midst, are an Oklahoma Sooners football fan. Boomer Sooner. I, I grew up being a Sooner fan. If that makes you not like me, you're welcome to leave right now, I guess. But, uh, but the reality is that's just the way I grew up. And I, I know what it's like to be interested and wants your team to put a wholehearted effort out on the field. Nobody gets excited about a half-hearted effort, do they? No one. Well, coach might get excited about it, but not in a good way, right? Nobody wants to give a half-hearted effort to anything that's important. And serving God and being right with Him and being delivered from a destruction is certainly something that's worth being wholehearted about. When we say wholehearted, we mean that there's no condition upon which I'm not going to follow through. You know, a lot of people today, when they get married, they're not wholehearted in their marriage because they say, well, I'll be married as long as they do this and this and this, and if they don't make me happy anymore, or if I meet somebody else that I'd rather be with, or, you know, off they go. They're not wholehearted in that. And that's one of the reasons that marriages come apart today is because people aren't wholehearted. People are wishy-washy. We want to be wholehearted. We want our, con our commitment to be unconditional. The only thing that matters. You know, there will be a point in your life about something. I one time was walking across my, uh, my 
living room floor in my apartment. This was back before I married Carrie. And I was in my apartment, and I felt something in my eye. You know, you get an eyelash or something in your eye sometimes, and it bothered me, and I tried to rub it, and I couldn't get it out. So I went and looked in the mirror, and I had a splinter sticking straight out of my eyeball. I don't know where it came from. fell off the ceiling or something. I don't know. But I had a splinter sticking out of my eyeball, you know, and I tried to, I couldn't get it, and I thought, this is not good. And every time I blinked, it would scratch the inside of my eyelid, you know. And it was a Saturday, and I lived there in Dallas. And I thought, well, there's an eye doctor here in the mall. I'm going to run over there. It was real close to where I lived. So I got in the car, and I drove over to the eye doctor. And I told the lady at the counter, I said, I don't have an appointment, but I have a splinter in my eye. And she said, oh, just a minute. And she went to the back, and then all the employees came out and looked in my eye. And the eye doctor said, well, I can't help you. He said, you need an ophthalmologist, not an optometrist. And I said, okay, where is one? He said, well, they're all closed till Monday. I said, I can't wait till Monday. And he said, well, you can go to an emergency room. They'll take it. I said, okay. So I went to ER. And I went in, and the doctor came in. He said, what's the problem? I said, I've got a splinter in my eye. He said, okay, lay down here. And I laid down, he put some drops in it, and then he pulled out a needle, and he said, look at the ceiling and don't blink. And I said, well, I don't know if I can keep from blinking. And he said, well, you'll only blink once. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I laid there and I stared at the ceiling while he dug that splinter out of my eyeball with a needle. Now, let me tell you why I tell you that story right now. Not just to horrify you. You could have, the day before, offered me a million dollars to let somebody dig in my eye with a needle, and I'd have said no. But there was a point at which that was the only thing that mattered. I will pay you to take a needle and dig in my eye now. Because that was the only thing that mattered. You see the difference in my commitment there. This is what we mean by wholehearted. I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to get that fixed. Wholehearted commitment to God means I'll do whatever He asks me to do. Anything! There's no limit to my commitment. Without reserve, I hold nothing back. I give it my all. I am what we say all in. I'm not just doubling down and doubling my bet. I'm pushing all the chips to the middle of the table and either we make it or we go, we go bankrupt and we're, we're gone. I'm putting everything I have on this. You know, Christianity and a commitment to Christ is that way. Here's just the truth. Okay, The truth is you're going to die. You are. And when you die, you're going to face a judge. God. That's going to happen. And you can, you can say, well, I don't, I don't think I need religion. But all of that stuff aside, you have no choice. You have to bet your soul on something. You have to. And you can bet your soul that there is a God and that Jesus Christ is His Son, or you can bet your soul that there isn't and He's not. But you have to put your soul on something. Wholehearted commitment is when you say, you know what, I am going to die and I know that, and because of that, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I am betting everything I've got that Jesus is God's Son. Period.
And there's nothing else more important than that. Nothing else matters. Because I believe He is God's Son. That's the kind of commitment that this guy had. Think about the cost to Noah. I mean, the cost, this guy had to work for a hundred years. A hundred years of hard labor. That's a long time to work on something, isn't it? And you know what? During that hundred years, that whole hundred years, there was not one drop of rain. Now, I know me, and I might get all excited when God told me this is going to happen. I go, yeah, let's do this, God. And I'd start... But after about 65 years, I'm going to be looking for a cloud. (laughs) I'm going to say, Lord, a little mist on the windshield would be nice. Just Just reassure me here. Not one drop of rain for a hundred years. Don't you know he was the laughing stock? Don't you know? (laughs) See the ark? That guy Noah, he's got a big one there in the backyard. People thought he was a lunatic. Can you imagine if somebody came out here to Wheeler and bought a big plot of land and started building an ark and saying that it was going to rain and cover all of the United States? What would you think about him? And he went on and he went on and on. Wasn't there a crazy guy in Amarillo a few years ago put signs all over town and stuff and everybody laughed about him, what a weirdo he was? You know they did that to Noah and his whole family. They had to be mocked and outcast for years and years. And yet they still did it. You know, not only that, he was a preacher of righteousness. He preached for a hundred years. And you know what? In a hundred years, he had not one single convert. Not one. You know, I've had years that I didn't convert a whole lot of people. And I've had other years that I did baptize quite a few people. And the years I baptize a lot of people, it's easy to be enthused, ready to go. The years that I don't, you know, drag a little bit. Can you imagine? I know you guys support evangelists around here, don't you? You support guys that go, would you keep supporting a guy that didn't convert somebody for a hundred years? You'd be saying, guy, you need another line of work. (laughs) This isn't working out for you. A hundred years. No one. Not one person. And yet he never quit. He never, ever quit. He never gave up. He never lost faith. He never lost hope. Why? Because he had that wholehearted commitment. That commitment that if if it's just me and my family, that's just what we're going to do. That's it. He had the same commitment that Joshua did. When Joshua said, you choose this day who you're going to serve. But for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's what's going to happen. No matter what the cost no matter what was involved. I want you to think about things he lost. He lost family. Now, he did have his wife and his three sons and their wives, but you know they had other family. They had cousins and uncles and aunts and, and second cousins and brothers. and You know there were more people in the family. He couldn't convert them. 
They didn't. Now, I don't know, maybe for a while, some of them when he first started said, you know, he may be on to something, but after 80 years, they're not buying it anymore. They're not with him. Would you give up your family? You know, I'm, I, the older I get, the more I, I realize that God, I was born on third base. You know, I mean, as far as the benefits in this life, I had such an awesome family. And God, they taught me God's Word from the time I was little. They say I went to my first gospel meeting when I was six weeks. I don't remember it, but, you know, that's all of my life. I, I've, I've not had to give up much of my family for Christ. In fact, in our family, the people who've given up family are people who left Christ and went away and gave up the family. We haven't had to give up our family to come to Christ. Would you do that? Man, that'd be hard, wouldn't it? I love my kids. I love my children, my grandbaby. It'd be tough to get on that ark and leave them outside, wouldn't it? I mean, can you imagine leaving your brother, your sister, your cousin outside and closing up that ark? You know what else he lost were friends. It was a wicked world. You know Noah was the only righteous guy. He's bound to have had some friends. He's bound to have had some people to say, well, you know, he may be a little crazy, but he's a good guy. I like him. Gave up all of his friends. Not just gave them up, they were going to die. And he gave them up to go into that ark. He gave up his homeland. I tell you, if you ever travel outside the United States, I know we got our problems here, but I promise you, you spend a couple of weeks with me in Nigeria, isn't that right, Sean? You'll appreciate America. You'll walk back and you'll go, America! <laughs> I mean, you'll be happy to be back. There was not going to be any homeland once this is over. It's all done. It's gone. There will be no more government. There will be no more rule of law extended. There will be no more democracy. There will be none of that. It's all going to be gone when he gets off that ark. He lost his income. You know, when this was over, he's not going down to Home Depot to get a job. <laughs> There's nowhere to work. There's no income to have. Dewey's been telling us about going off down in the holler and living, you know, off of the land for a week or two. This is forever, Dewey. This isn't just a couple of weeks. He didn't have a cell phone to call somebody to come pick him up. I mean, it was over. He lost his lifestyle, his way, everything he had here in, as far as this world goes, his income. And he lost his credibility. People had no confidence in him. A nut who would spend a hundred years building an ark telling everyone water's going to fall from the sky when water's never fall, fallen from the sky had no credibility with anyone. Would you give up all those things? Why? Why would a guy give up all that stuff? You know why he gave it up? It's a very simple thing. And this is the heart of the hope right there. He gave it up because God delivered him. God delivered him. Everyone else died, but he was saved. He and his sons and his wife and their wives were saved. 
I want you to know there are a lot of preachers in this world who will offer you a lot of things. They'll promise you a lot of things. When I was on the way into town this evening, I turned on my car radio first time since I've been out here. And obviously none of my stations work, so I told it to just scan. And it found a preacher. And that guy was promising to heal everybody. And I'm telling you, life was going to be grand if you just send him some money and, and come to his miracle university where they teach you to do miracles and stuff. I want you to know, any preacher that promises you the reward of God here on this earth is lying to you. This is not where the reward of God is. The reward of God is after you die. The reward of God is after the flood. The reward of God is after the end here. That's where the reward... And His reward was not any of these things. It was not a better relationship with His family. It was not a nicer home. It was not great credibility. It wasn't a, a good income. None of those things were going to help Him. The only benefit that He got was the only benefit that mattered. And that is, He didn't die in the destruction. He made it through. He survived. And he became heir of the world through those things. By faith, Noah moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. He trusted God. He had faith in what he had never seen, what he did, had no idea for in experience what happened, but he trusted what God said and he committed himself wholeheartedly to that for all the rest of his life. And as a result, God saved him. You know, God has always required this kind of faith, this all or nothing kind of faith. I think one of the biggest challenges we have in America today, in American Christianity, is the idea that it's something that you can just kind of do. And that's okay with God. It's okay with Him for you to just be kind of committed that it's okay with God if you are just partially committed. You know, I've mentioned to you that I teach at this Christian school. One of the, one of the re regulations to get to come to our school is you have to have a letter from your church that says you're a regular active member of your church. And when I teach, every Monday I ask those kids, did you go to church this weekend? I ask them that every Monday. You know, a bunch of them don't. And I was talking to the guy that started the school, who runs the school, and he said, you're kidding, well they all sign a thing that says they go to church. But what we figured out is, to a lot of people in America today, if you go once a month, you consider yourself a regular active part of the church. That's not the way Noah was. It wasn't a part-time commitment. It wasn't unless there's something else more important or more fun. It was an all or nothing. Look at how some of these people said it. Job said it this way, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Think about that, Britt. Even if he kills me, I'm going to trust him. Why? Because he's God. He is God. And that doesn't change based on whether I like what he does or not. He's God and I trust in him. And Job said, even if he kills me, I'm going to trust him. You know, when we go to Nigeria, we always pray as a family before I leave. And we pray that God will take care of my family here and that he will take me safely to Nigeria. 
and that he will protect me while I'm in Nigeria and he will bring me safely home. Not just me, but for all the guys who go. I still do that, but this year I began to pray differently because of this. This right here in particular. You know what I began to pray this year is, you know what God, I just want your will to be done and your son to be glorified, whatever that means. Now, I would like you to bring me home safely, if you will. But if you don't, that doesn't make any difference. I'm still going to serve you. It doesn't matter if my, I want my wife to be protected and taken care of and loved by our church family while I'm gone. But if she's not, it doesn't matter because I'm still going to serve God. That's not going to change. No matter what happens, when I go over there, if they kidnap me, I hope that doesn't happen, but I'm still going to serve God. That's what God has called us to. That no matter what the cost, no matter what the call, David said it this way, with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. He said, I seek for you with my whole heart. That's the most important thing to me. The guys in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we grew up watching, or not grew up, but my kids grew up watching Veggie Tales, so we called them Rack, Shack, and Benny. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in the fiery furnace, or fixing to get thrown in there. The king says, bow down and worship, or I'm going to kill you. And they said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O king. They stood up to the king and they said, God can and He will deliver us. And then they said this, But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. They said, our God can save us. We believe He will. But you know what? If He doesn't, He's still God. We're still going to serve Him. We're not going to serve your false God. Even if He lets us die. He's still God. You see, this is the kind of wholehearted commitment to Christ that He asks you and He asks me for. So, where's the hope in this? The hope is this. If you will commit yourself, if you'll test God and just commit yourself this way to where there is no cost too high, there is no amount of money too much. There is no, no commitment that you just won't make that He's asked you for. You'll do whatever it is. You'll give up anything you need to give up. In any circumstance or situation, you are going to serve God. Period. If you'll make that commitment, then He says this. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, there is a tremendous freedom in letting go of trying to fix it all yourself. There's a tremendous freedom in that. Um, when we're in Nigeria, I don't drive. The, the driving over there is unbelievably difficult. And you know what I do? 
I just sit back and relax. Because it doesn't matter. If we're going to make it, we're going to make it. And if we're not, we're not. And there's nothing I can do about it. I have a tendency in my life here in America to be a bit of a control freak. People who know me know that that's a problem that I have. But you know what? In the things that matter, if you just do what God says, you don't have to worry about how it's going to turn out. You just do what He says and you trust Him to take care of how it's going to turn out. God has always, every time, every story, every experience, every time in history, God has always delivered His people from the destruction that He brought upon the ungodly. And I want you to know today that if you will make this kind of commitment, and you won't mark off any spots of your life where you'll say, well, you can have everything, but you can't have this, Lord. I'll do everything, but I won't do that. If you won't make those limits on your commitment to Christ, and you'll just do anything you find in His Word that He has asked you to do, and you'll do that regardless of the cost, some people get mad at you. You may lose family. You may lose friends. You may lose some credibility. You may lose your job. You may lose some things. But you'll gain the only thing that matters. You'll gain the only thing that you can hold on to. Jesus, just as He invited them into that ark, He has invited you to come to Him. Come unto Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Do you labor in your life? You have struggles? You fight with stuff? You got burdens? Come to Jesus. Come to Him and just say, you know, I hadn't done a real good job fixing my problems. But I tell you what, I'll just do whatever you tell me to do. And whatever the consequences is, that's just whatever the consequences are, that's what they are. And that's all that we, we can do. If you will do that, you will find the blessings and the promise. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. The things that will be laid upon you will be a wonderful blessing. And in the end, there will be deliverance from the destruction that's coming upon all the world and all those who won't serve Jesus Christ.